Peace to you. Welcome back to The Naked Truth, and thank you for joining me. We're going to begin where we left off with the book of 1 Samuel, and we made it to chapter 26. If you want to read along with me, we're going to begin with verse 1. Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding in the hill of Hakulah opposite Jeshimon? So, as always, please forgive me if I mispronounce any of these. Saul is the king, first king of the Jewish people. Uh, we all know Jesus was crucified as the king of the Jewish people. Uh, at least that was the seditious claim made against him um, at his crucifixion. Saul is the first one, though. And it's not the same Saul that changed his name to Paul that rose with another religion after, Christ after the Christian religion appears in the Bible. Uh, Saul laid down the groundwork for another religion, Catholicism. Not the same thing as Christianity. Um, though it tries to slide under the umbrella of Christianity. It's not totally different teachings that have nothing to do with what Jesus says. You don't have to take my word for that. You can see for yourself. The red letters of the Bible are in only six books of the Bible. Paul's teachings in the Bible, or Saul if you prefer, his teachings appear after the teachings of Jesus, and none of the red letters are in his teachings from the book of Acts to the book of Revelation. Um, you won't see anything in between there with red letters. If there are, there's a rare quote from someone else, but nothing of a quote of Jesus appears in Paul's teachings. Um, so it's not the same Paul. It's not the same Saul. This is a different Saul. Um, and so he's ha he has informants letting him know that David, that's the same David and Goliath David, um, where his hiding place is. Because at this point in the story, Saul is hunting down David, trying to kill him so that he can... He hopes to cut off the prophecy that the now deceased Samuel gave him that a new king was has already been chosen and is on its way to reign over the people instead of Saul. Verse 2. Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. So uh, Saul has his army and he's gone to go hunt down David. David has a few hundred people with him. I think 600 was the last number mentioned um, that he has following him. Verse 3. And Saul encamped in the hill of Hakilah, which is opposite Jeshimon, by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness. And he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. So this isn't the first time David has noticed Saul trying to hunt him down. And so now he notices again that even though Saul, who again seems to have dementia, he seems to uh, say things, then forget them, know things, then forget them. So maybe it's some sort of dementia, Alzheimer's, something's going on with his mind that he's not, uh, that his memory doesn't seem to always be accurate or very good or reliable. So here he's hunting him down again, and David recognizes and sees him uh, in the wilderness after him again, even though they seem to have come to some peace treaty previously when David uh, could have killed him and didn't. Verse 4, David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. So David um, researched it to make sure, uh, probably because, again, they had a sort of peace treaty between them where Saul uh, recognized that he was in the wrong in the situation, at least by his estimation of things, and decided to go ahead and leave David alone. So I guess David just wants to make sure uh, why is there beef again? So he sent out spies and found out. And yeah, he is after him again. Verse 5. So David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw 
the place where Saul lay, and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Now Saul lay within the camp, with the people encamped all around him. So Saul is the leader of the army as the king, basically, and Abner is his uh, main general, so to speak, the actual head of his army, the military leader of his army. Um, and he's done the same thing that the religion uh, does uh, and did back then, previously, before they entered the promised land, and what religion does now. It surrounds themselves with the people to protect them from danger, so that if any danger arises, the danger is met by the people first, and the elites, generally the religious, the religious leaders, um, and it, also the uh, governing officials are uh, in, uh, protected from that danger, at least to the point where first you'll have to get through the common folk before you can get to the elites. Same thing was happening then and same thing's happening now in uh, America and probably all around the world. Um, so um, he's encamped in the middle. Verse six, then David answered and said to Ahimelech, the Hittite and to Abisha, Abishai, excuse me, the son of Zariah, brother of Joab, saying, who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishua said, I will go down with you. So more people being introduced here. Ahimelech as um, one of his um, allies, basically. Um, um, the other people, brother of Joab and um, slips my mind which one Joab is. Um, like Saul. So I'm going to do a search real quick just to be sure. And I'm using the um, blueletterbible.org website again to help um, uh, as my reading resource um, here with us. So, um, oh, I thought maybe we'd read about him before, but it seems Joab, this may be the first mention of Joab because I just did a search of his name and this is the first time his name appears in the Bible. So maybe I'm remembering it from where I've read it before. So that means he's probably gonna uh, be a central figure as we keep reading. Um, but this is where, the, where he's first mentioned. Um, and the other people are basically allies of his also. And they're saying that they'll join David in going down to see what's up with Saul this time. Verse 7, so David and Abishai came to the people by night. And there Saul lay sleeping within the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head. And Abner and the people lay all around him. So David's made it to where uh, Saul is camped out him and his people all the way up to Saul um, and close enough to see where he's at, where his weapon is at, and that he's asleep. Verse 8, then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. So this is the second time where someone is, um, at least the second time, where someone has told David, Now's your chance to go ahead and take out your enemy. Go ahead and do it. Um, and his last, the last time it happened, he had the sanctimonious response. I don't mean to wear that word out, but it's the most fitting word for his behavior, um, where he didn't want to take out the king because he saw him as the Lord's anointed and that it would be wrong of him to do so. Yet it wasn't wrong of him to get that close or to have other people willing to take him out for him. 
But here he is in the same situation again. Someone's telling him, let me go ahead and take care of Saul now um, so that we can end all of this. Verse 9, but David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? So there it is again with that sort of holy response, uh, sanctimonious holiness, where it's a show. It seems very showy for him to say all of this, but he's saying that, no, he doesn't want to do anything against the one the Lord has anointed as leader of the people. Um, but remember, he's also been anointed as the leader of the people, the new one to come to replace Saul. Um, maybe he doesn't recognize that right now. Uh, but either way, again, it's um, it's it seems like a showy answer instead of just doing what needs to be done, since that's what he's there to do anyway, to become the next king. And it but he's saying that he doesn't want to take that route. He doesn't want that blood on his hands, basically. Verse 10, David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him or his day shall come to die or he shall go out to battle and perish. So that of what David is saying uh, makes sense that he doesn't want to take it into his own hands at this point and kill Saul um, because whatever he is meant for him will, uh, will find him. Um, and he doesn't need to take it into his hands to do it. So that is a righteous response for a Christian. Um, but remember, Christianity and its tenets have not been laid out yet. They're still under the Old Testament, Old Covenant laws, where it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And um, it's okay to love your uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, I think is how they um, preach it in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. So it's it's not real clear why he's so set on saving Saul, other than maybe because he has, shares love with Saul's kids. He's married to Saul's daughter, and he has a love affair, soulmate love affair, with, with Saul's son, Jonathan. So uh, maybe that's why, and because he's sworn a pledge to Jonathan that they'd look out for each other and each other's families. So maybe that's why he doesn't want to do it also. Um, and one other thing, Lord, here is things translated from the name Jehovah, just so you know that. Verse 11, the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but please take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let us go. So last time he cut off a corner of Saul's clothing while he was in the cave tending to his business to um, then present it to Saul and let him know he was close enough to kill him, but didn't. Now he's telling one of his servants to take, or what it is, stealing, steal Saul's spear from beside his head and the jug of water that Saul has to drink and take that as proof that he could have killed him again and uh, just leave him, leave him be and flee from the scene. Verse 12, so David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head and they got away and no man saw or knew it or awoke. For they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. So it seems the narrator is putting their sort of two cents in on this saying that everyone in the camp, the thousands of people that are surrounding him are all asleep. And it's the Lord that did it, according to the narrator. And again, the narrator can't be Samuel, but his book, the, uh, the name of the book is named after the person the book is named after since we already read that Samuel has passed away. So Samuel can't possibly be still writing these events now. So it has to be the narrator or perhaps a scribe 
at some later time going over the events and adding their uh, two cents to the story, um, saying that it's the Lord who put the whole army, those thousands of people to sleep, so much so that David could go into the camp all the way up to the king and take his jug and his jug of water and his spear from beside his head. Whatever the case may be, just reading it as it reads. So um, David's gotten away again with possessions of Saul's that he could only have gotten if he were close enough to take his life. Verse 13, now David went over to the other side and stood on the top of, the, of a hill afar off, a great distance between them all, between them. So now once again, David has gotten away from Saul far enough that he can't just get up and kill him, but close enough that he can still get his attention. Verse 14, and David called out to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, do you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, who are you calling out to the king? So now um, he's able to call out from a distance and wake uh, Abner up, the one who's supposedly guarding the king. Um, he's gotten his attention by shouting out to him. Uh, verse 15, so David said to Abner, are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your Lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy your Lord, the king. So now David is calling Abner out for falling asleep on duty, something that used to be punishable by death in the military. I don't know if it still is. Some of those rules don't apply anymore. In the same way, you look at January 6th, those people were chanting to hang the vice president. Now he's out kissing their rumps, trying to get them to vote for him again. Very spineless. But not only that, those same people were chanting um, uh, death for those different causes that they saw as offenses to the country. Yet when they're caught, the ones that were still arrested, many of them got away. They weren't arrested at all. They were free to go, um, but they weren't rounded up at all. But the ones that were, um, if they were, if they really believed in the things that they were out there chanting and proclaiming on January 6th, then they should have been put to death because they committed sedition or treason or at the very least attempted murder in a whole mass of them. And yet, are they even being charged with any of that? No, not at all. So it lets you know a lot of what's going on is theater. And you see now, Nancy Pelosi has, stepped, has decided to step down. Might as well. She was ineffective in those two impeachment trials, not calling for a tra the, the transcripts from the phone calls between the previous president and the Ukrainian president, which would have proven if he was actually um, up to no good with the whole quid pro quo mess. She didn't do that. She didn't call for that. She didn't go out and vocally of actively call for that to be brought forth in the trials. No, she didn't do it at all. Neither did any of the Democrats. Uh, and neither did they in the second impeachment trial even subpoena the person who's being charged, the previous president, or even the vice president. Didn't subpoena either, either of them because, again, a lot of it is theater. If they wanted to, they could have subpoenaed them. Whether they forced them to appear or not, they could have subpoenaed them. It wouldn't have been unheard of. Remember, Bill Clinton was subpoenaed and forced to testify. Yet none of that was done because there's a whole system in place of theatrics that help prevent and help maintain white supremacy. And again, this isn't a thing against white people. It's a thing against white, the idea of white supremacy because that whole idea is flawed in the fact that according to science, regardless of religion, according to science, all of us, who are alive today, traced back to people who were in Africa.
So the original Adam and Eve, whether you believe in um, the Bible or not, the first two people who keep civilization going in the sense of people who are here alive now were in Africa. So almost certainly they were black. And you don't have to take my word for it. If you're ready for the truth and you want the truth to set you free like Christianity tells you it will, then go get your own DNA tested. Get it mapped out and see. No matter how pale, blonde, and blue you may be, at least a small percentage, generally 1% to 3% of you is black, is African. So believe what you want to believe, uh, but the truth still is the truth, and the truth is generally naked, probably why it's so unpopular. Anyway, verse 16, this thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you've not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed. You now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was by his head. So now David is calling out Abner for falling asleep on duty and letting his king's life be put in danger by someone who snuck up on them while they were asleep. Verse 17, then Saul knew David's voice and said, is that your voice, my son, David? David said, it is my voice, my lord, O king. So once again, Saul has either got dementia or he's playing crazy because how in the world is he suddenly doesn't know David's voice? And that's not the first time it's happened. Before, David was his musician. Then next thing you know, he didn't know who he was. So here again, he's acting as if he doesn't or truly doesn't know who David is or David's voice when you hear them calling out to him. Uh, although David has let him know that he's gotten close enough and let Abner, his army commander, know he got close enough to kill him if he wanted to, but didn't yet again. Only he took his jug of water and the spear, his weapon that he was relying on, that was right beside him. Verse 18, and he said, why does my Lord per thus pursue his servant? For what have I done or what evil is in my hand? So David is again, asking Saul, what is his offense that he's out hunting him down again? Um, again, because this isn't the first time that Saul has tried to kill him. It's been several times now. Verse 19, now therefore, please let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is, but if it is the children of men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they've driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. So David is saying, uh, whoever is at fault, if it's uh, the Lord who's caused the enmity between Saul and David, David is saying, then let the Lord just accept an offering, a, generally a burnt offering, an animal sacrifice, some sort of peace offering to make up and make amends with the Lord. And he's saying, if it isn't the Lord who's behind the strife between them, then it must be a person. And he's saying, if it's a person, then cursed be the person who stirred up the problems between Saul and David. And he's saying, because that enmity, that strife has caused him to flee from his inheritance. And the inheritance he's referring to, I think, is the inheritance that the Israelites have claimed for themselves as an inheritance, when in actuality, it's just like how America claimed America, I'm sorry, how the colonizers claimed America for itself as a God-given inheritance, or what do they call it? Um, um, what's the word? What's the word? It escapes me. Of providence. They, they can, they can, what's another word for it though? They consider it God's gift that they were able to come here and take the land 
from uh, the people who already occupied it. Similarly, they feel it's their place to go in and take the promised land because um, they feel like it's been given to them by God to go in and take it, even though people already live there. And even though the same Lord that they are serving or claim to serve says, thou shalt not covet, which is what it's called when you see someone else's land and you feel like it's your own. Thou shalt not steal, which is what it's called when you see that land that's not your own, but covet it for yourself and then steal it and take it for yourself. Um, and thou shalt not kill is what it's called when you go in and start massacring the people who live there, which is what happened in America and which is what happened in um, the Bible with the story of the promised land. How they were told thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet. But then they were also told to go in and massacre the people who live there. So believe what you want. But again, it makes it hard for me to believe that that's God Almighty who would give both of those contradictory commandments and uh, orders. One's a commandment. The others are orders. The orders to go in and massacre the people, those are orders. Um, the commandments are those big ten. They didn't change. But those other orders seem a lot like just religion and government working with religion to accomplish um, its own goals. But that's just me. Verse 20, so now do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea as when one hunts a partridge in the mountains. So David is there humbling himself saying, it's beneath the king to go out and waste his time hunting someone so it's insignificant as himself. He's, um, it's, that's, he's, it's, that doesn't seem as sanctimonious. He's actually being kind of, uh, he's just trying to be respectful and pointed out to Saul there that what's the big deal? What is it he feels? What threat does he see in someone so um, minor as David when he's the king sitting on the throne um, over all those people, reigning over all those people? Verse 21, and Saul said, I've sinned. Return, my son, David, for I will harm you no more because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I've played the fool and erred exceedingly. So now Saul seems to be humbling himself uh, again, because this isn't the first time where he's turned around and admitted he was wrong, but then turned around and still hunted him down again. Um, so he's having one of those moments. Maybe it's dementia. Maybe it's Alzheimer's. Maybe he's just acting. Maybe he's a, a, a lush. There's no telling what's causing him to have these swings of mood. Um, before, it was accounted to uh, a distressing spirit that would cause him to have different uh, behavioral swings in his um, in his um, actions. So maybe that's what's bothering him. But it seems like it must be some sort of undiagnosed mental illness that seems to keep plaguing him. But anyway, at this point, he's repentant to David and admitting that he was wrong. Verse 22, and David answered and said, here's the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and get it. So now David is accepting, it seems, of Saul's um, change in heart and telling him to send over one of his um, subordinates to just go ahead and get the spear and probably the jug of water too. Um, verse 23, may the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. So um, that's the part where he's, it seems sanctimonious again. If you're going to do something righteous, do something righteous. Don't go ahead and blow a trumpet before you like Jesus tells us. You're going to do something charitable. You're going to do something, uh, some sort of giving 
you're going to do something holy. Don't go broadcasting it to the world so that you can get praise and attention from the world for doing it. That's not what it's supposed to be about. If you're going to do something righteous, just do it and let whatever um, praise you get be what it is. But going out and proclaiming it as it's so righteous, it's so holy, that robs it of its righteousness. Verse 24, and indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. That's a nice verse there to say for our own sake, in our own um, Christian paths, even though, again, this isn't Christianity. Um, it's something to consider. It's something that would be a nice prayer to include that um, let the Lord value our own lives and, and the righteousness that we try to achieve uh, and let our lives be valued much in God's eyes. Um, just the same way um, David valued Saul's life when he could have taken it and didn't. Verse 25, then Saul said to David, may you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things and also still prevail. So David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. So once again, it seems they've come to a peace treaty, a truce, and Saul has um, gone on his separate way and let David go his way. Uh, how long that'll last, I'm not sure. I don't quite recall. Um, but we're almost to the end of the book of 1 Samuel, so I'm guessing it's coming to a head pretty soon. But we are to the end of this chapter in 1 Samuel, so that's where we're going to end this reading. As always, thank you for joining me for The Naked Truth. I hope it's a blessing for you and that you'll join me again. I love you, and I'll see you next time. Peace be with you.